0: Today, I'd like to begin a 15-week study in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. And the focus of our attention this morning will be on Ezra chapters 1 and 2. So let me invite you to turn there with me. A few books before the Psalms, Ezra chapters 1 and 2. Before we get into the text, we need to understand the context in which these books were written so let's think about some introductory material so that we can understand the historical and cultural context and understand where Ezra is going with this, with this uh, writing. This, the historical context is, uh, really falls on the heels of what we've been studying in the book of Daniel. So if you've been following along in our study on Daniel, this really comes in that period just after Daniel. Daniel was part of the first wave of exiles that was taken to Babylon by King Nebuchadnezzar in 605 B.C. We'll talk about that a little bit more later when we get into Ezra 1. But 67 years after Daniel had been taken into exile, in Daniel chapter 9, Daniel had read from Jeremiah's prophecy and he noticed that the captivity was only going to last for 70 years. And so he prayed to God that God would end this time of captivity and God indeed did that. And while Daniel didn't himself leave Babylon and head back to Jerusalem, as we'll see these groups of Jews do, Daniel was a Jew, but he didn't join them. Uh, he stayed likely to be uh, continue as an official there in Babylon for the Jewish people that remained. Uh, 50,000 of the other Jews would head back to Jerusalem. And so Ezra 1 really picks up where Daniel left off. And that's and, th- and that's what we're going to see when we get here to, to our study this morning. The story of Israel's rest- return to Jerusalem. You know, if we think of uh, Babylon like a time of captivity or even like a time of slavery like it was in Egypt, that God is returning His people back to the place that He had promised to them, the land of Canaan, you know, specifically Jerusalem, and so this story of Israel's return back to Jerusalem is this two-volume set that we're going to study, which is Ezra and Nehemiah. And we could divide the, these two books up into three main sections. First, Ezra, Ezra chapters one through six is records for us the first return back to Jerusalem, the first wave. Of returned exiles back to Jerusalem. That's chapters 1 through 6. And there we're going to see that Cyrus, King Cyrus of Persia, sends Israel back to the leadership of Zerubbabel. We'll see that in chapter 1. And then we'll see in chapter 2 the Jewish remnant that is recorded to have gone back. Chapters 3 through 6 talk about the work on the temple and how it begins, because really that's what they're trying to do. They're trying to restore worship back in the temple in Jerusalem. And, uh, And these first six chapters, this whole first return that we're going to be looking at over the next several weeks, chapters 1 to 6, takes place over a period of 23 years. So there's going to be some stops and starts uh, during this time, 23 years. And then following chapter 6, leading into chapter 7, we have a 57-year interlude where nothing's happening on the temple. No work is being done. And that leads us into the second return. There's going to be another group of people that head back led by Ezra himself. Ezra's not going to be a part of this first return. He'll be a part of the second return. And so after 80 years, after the first group had come the very first time, basically it's, it's another 80 years later before Ezra comes along in chapters 7-10 through 10, and he leads this group back to start the rebuilding of the temple again. And then in chapters 9-10 and 10, we'll see that he reforms, seeks to reform the people, show them their sin and see that they need to be right with God. And that second part, the second wave, the second group that comes, and what's recorded in chapters 7 through 10 takes the place over the period of one year. So chapters 1 through 6, 23 years, interlude between 6 and 7, 57 years, one year for chapters 7 through 10. And then the third part is in Nehemiah. The book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah records the third return in 444 BC. Um, and that takes place over the period of 22 years. So altogether, from the first return of the Jews to Jerusalem, all the way till the end when the work is done and Nehemiah is there, is going to be 102 years of study that we're going to do in 12 uh, 15 weeks. Uh, the reason that we're studying both of these books together is because historically they've been a part of uh, really one book, It wasn't until the 3rd century and then later the 15th century that these books were divided in the Hebrew Bible as we have them now as Ezra and Nehemiah. But really, before they were part of a a one work, Ezra and Nehemiah. And um, so we're going to study them together in that way as part of a kind of a two-volume set. Well, the other thing that we need to know about this book uh, in order to understand it is the author the author uh, seems to be Ezra for this entire book. He doesn't come onto the scene, as I said, until chapter seven, and those didn't take place. The, the second return there doesn't take place till 80 years after the first return. So he's probably a young boy if he's even alive during that first return. Uh, but I think Ezra learns from probably Zerubbabel, the priest, what happens during that first return, and he records it all for us in chapters one through six. And then he also records what happens during the time in which he returned with his group of Jews in chapters 7 through 10. So most likely it is Ezra. The reason that we know that Ezra wrote chapters 7 through 10 at the very least is because he uses the word I. He tells it in the first person. He says that when I came back, when, when I talked to the people and so on. And so we, we know that Ezra wrote at least those chapters and very likely the whole book. It seems to me also that the Chronicles, First and Second Chronicles, were also written by Ezra, uh, compiled a history of Israel and and put it there together uh, to show God's mercy to David's family. Ezra was a priest and a scribe, and so he wrote for a living. He he was very concerned about words and how they were written and and spoken. And his job as a scribe was to carefully collect records and to copy Scripture, to make copies of the Old Testament Scripture. And so he would have been very well equipped to have the mind for this type of job that he's going to put together. When we get to Nehemiah, I'm going to suggest that Nehemiah wrote that book. So Ezra wrote First and Second Chronicles and Ezra, and then uh, Nehemiah wrote Nehemiah. And the, the point of the book is that God sovereignly delivered His people from Babylonian captivity and caused them to restore worship in the Jerusalem temple. It's a record for the Jews and for us looking on to see that God was the one who, who delivered His people from the captivity of Babylon back to the place where they could restore worship in the Jerusalem temple. And as we see the great loss that it was when King Nebuchadnezzar came in and first started taking people out and then destroying the temple. We'll see what a great loss that is to the people, to the Jews. It'll help us to see why it's so important for them to get back into the right kind of worship that God demands. Okay, so with that background, let's study chapters 1 and 2 this morning. Chapters 1 and 2. Before we begin, let me read chapter 1 for us, beginning in verse 1. This is the Word of God. Now, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the Word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he sent a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing, saying, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed to me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever there is among you, all his people, may his God be with him. Let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. Every survivor at whatever place he may live, let the men of that place support him with silver and gold, with goods and cattle, together with a freewill offering for the house of God which is in Jerusalem. Then the heads of fathers' households of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites arose, even everyone whose spirit God had stirred to go up and rebuild the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem. All those about them encouraged them with articles of silver, with gold, with goods, with cattle, and with valuables, aside from all that was given as a freewill offering. Also, King Cyrus brought out the articles of the house of the Lord, which Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and put in the house of his gods. And Cyrus, king of Persia, had them brought out by hand of Mithridath, the treasurer, and he counted them out to Sheshbazar, the prince of Judah. Now, this was their number. 30 gold dishes, 1,000 silver dishes, 29 duplicates, 30 gold bowls, 410 silver bowls of a second kind, and 1,000 other articles. All the articles of gold and silver numbered 5,400. Shaspazar brought them all up with the exiles who went up from Babylon to Jerusalem. Three main principles that we see in this passage this morning. Number one, God stirs up King Cyrus. God is behind the return of Israel. God is the one who stirs him up to lead the people or send the people back to Jerusalem. Judah had been exiled by Babylon in three phases. The first phase I mentioned earlier was when Daniel was taken into captivity. The first thing that King King Nebuchadnezzar did when he conquered lands was he would take the best of the best, young people, the, the, the nobles, the wise people, And he brought them back to Babylon so that he could train them in the Babylonian way of living, the culture, and in their religion, so that hopefully over time that they would assimilate into the Babylonian culture, and eventually that that uh, nation would be enormous, unstoppable. And so Daniel was a part of that first wave, along with his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And that happened in 605 B.C. The second group was taken in battle in 597 B.C. And the third group was taken to Babylon in 587 B.C., leaving almost nothing, almost nobody in Israel. In fact, the temple had been destroyed in one of those last two battles and, and the Jews were not the same people as they were before. And 68 years had passed since Daniel had arrived in Babylon and the Babylonian Empire had fallen, and now it comes to this spot here in chapter 1, verse 1, where King Cyrus is the emperor of Persia. And notice what happens here. Cyrus, in verse 1, sent out a proclamation, the end of the verse says, and he said this, listen, the God who is over you, He has appointed me to bit for." to send you back to build that temple back up to the way it was supposed to be so that worship can be continued. Now we know from Daniel chapter 10 that King Cyrus of Persia was not a believer. And the reason we know that is because Daniel prophesies or, or, or Daniel hears from the uh, the angel there in Daniel 10, uh, the Lord himself, excuse me, that that. That he would be delayed for three weeks. Or the reason that he was delayed was because the demon who empowered the king of Persia was opposing him. The demon who was empowering the king of Persia was opposing the Lord from getting to Daniel and and telling him this message. That's why he had to wait for 21 days. So, what that tells us is that there's a demon empowering wicked King Cyrus, not a believer. For Cyrus, he wanted to send these people back as a diplomatic move. Can you imagine a person in power that's diplomatic? Right? They're, they're concerned about what the people think. They're concerned about uh, allegiances and so on. And he was so much a diplomat that he even professed allegiance to the gods of Babylon. Remember, he's from Persia. He, he, he professes allegiance to the gods of Babylon in order to endear the Babylonian citizens to himself. And so what he's doing here when he's sending the Jews back to Jerusalem to rebuild their temple, continue or re reestablish worship there in that temple, is he's trying to show favor to the Jews so that they will like him. So that he will be a, a more um, well-received ruler. Not only did he issue the decree, but he helped to finance it. Look at verse 4. He says in his decree, every survivor at whatever place he may live, let the men of that place, support him with silver, gold, goods, cattle, and a free will offering. So listen, these Jews, if they're going to accomplish this task, they're going to need some money. They're going to need some resources to be able to make it back this long trip. And they're going to need some money to restore this temple. So why don't you help them out? Now, what you need to keep in mind is that there are still Jews who remained in Babylon. So he very well could be talking to other Jews and they would be likely to send some money with their friends, their their family um, but but he helped finance it by putting it into his decree to say, "Listen, you need to help pay for this trip and for this project uh, later on we're going to see that he helps them by having some things sent and uh even offering uh there to be a guard for the people who are taking some of these valuable things back to Jerusalem now secular people would would look at this decree in history that Cyrus sent the Jews back to Jerusalem, they would look at that and say, just another diplomatic move on the part of a king. That he's just trying to endear himself to the people that he rules over. But notice in verse 1 that God tells us that it wasn't just a diplomatic move on the part of a wicked king, but rather it was God who was behind it all. Look at verse 1. Now, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord. So, in other words, God had prophesied that the Jews were going to go back to Jerusalem. So, if that didn't happen, that would make God a liar or incapable. And so, this is in order to fulfill the word. So, so how is this going to happen? How is God going to line up all of history so that the Jews make it back to Jerusalem? Well, it tells us in the next line, it says... The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia. It's God that's behind this decree. It's God that's behind this man who is led by a a demon. It's God who's behind him to make this decree to send the Jews back. It's a clear example of Proverbs 21.1 that says, The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord, and he turns it whatever way he wishes. No action by a human king is outside the control of God. God accomplishes exactly what He wants through every human king, every ruler, as He does here in Cyrus. Cyrus doesn't feel bound by this. He does it out of his own choice. But he also does it because God stirred his heart to do it. God caused him to do it. He was behind it. While Cyrus meant the decree for the Jews to be returned for himself for selfish purposes, God meant it for good to fulfill the promises that He had made to Israel and to bring about much good in the people of Israel. God is the one who is behind the decree from King Cyrus. You should notice that God is, is, um, was behind this, that, that God had, had promised to Israel that they would go back. 200 years earlier, Isaiah had prophesied that a man by the name of Cyrus... This is amazing if you think about it. Cyrus was not even born in Isaiah. In Isaiah 44, 28, is prophesying through the Word of God saying there's going to be a man named Cyrus who is going to send Israel back to Jerusalem following the captivity so that the temple could be rebuilt. You see, God's not just... You know, I kind of hope it turns out in the right way. I hope I have everything in a row so this plan works out. God knows it down to the person. He knows exactly who is going to do it. And Ezra points specifically to this return being a fulfillment in verse 1. He says that according to the the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah. In Jeremiah 16.15, there's a prophecy there through the prophet Jeremiah It says, uh, where God says, I will return them to their land which I gave to their fathers. Jeremiah had prophesied that they would, yes, be taken into captivity because of their sin. And they're going to be there for a long time, 70 years. But then they're going to be returned. And as Isaiah says, through King Cyrus. You see, God is faithful to his promise, his promises, no matter how bad it seemed to get for the Jews. God had not forgotten them. And God was not unsure of what He was going to do. God was not weak in that He's like, I don't know how I'm going to get them back, but I hope I can work something out. God is faithful to His promises. He's never failed on one. And He never will. God stirs up King Cyrus. And secondly, we should note that God stirs up the Jews. Verses 5-11. through God stirs up the Jews. Now we might think, of of the Jews returning to Jerusalem as kind of like a homecoming, right? Why wouldn't they want to go back? It was certainly the desire of every Jew to go back to Jerusalem. But what you need to keep in mind is that this was no small thing. They had been there for 70 years, and these people who are coming back very likely had never been to Jerusalem before. It would be like if your grandparents were born in Germany but emigrated to the United States and since that time your family you were born here your family set down its roots here in the United States and now there's an opportunity for you and your siblings and your cousins to go back to Germany and to live there right it's just not that easy it would require some serious resolve on your part if you're going to do that it would require some serious commitment well, in addition to the fact that they already had their routes set up in Babylon, this trip was not going to be an easy one. You know, for us, we just get in, the, get in the plane and we go over to Germany. But for them, this was not going to be a quick trip from Babylon to Jerusalem. Peter Stevenson notes in his commentary that this trip would have been about a thousand miles from Babylon to Jerusalem and You'll never guess how they traveled back then, right? They didn't travel like we do. They traveled on foot. They would have had to leave some possessions behind because there was just too much to carry. Some of the parents would have had to carry small babies and children. would have taken several months to get there from Babylon to Jerusalem, making several stops uh, and, and pitching tents in order to, 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 uh, to get some rest. They would have had to overcome tiredness, the rigorous terrain, inclement weather, sickness, many other burdens along the way. And yet, these Jews chose to leave their established homes in Babylon, all that they had ever known from the time that they were born, in order to go back to Jerusalem to restore worship to God in the place and in the way that God wanted. This is significant. This is a big move on the part of the Jews. And notice who's behind it. Verse 5. Then the heads of the fathers' households of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites arose, even everyone whose spirit God had stirred to go up and rebuild the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem. See, God was behind the decree for the people to be able to go back but God was also behind the people who are kind of stuck in life, kind of getting used to it. He's behind that and giving them the desire to go back to Jerusalem and do something that's not going to be easy. We're going to see here next week, there's going to be some serious opposition to the Jews and their desire to rebuild the temple. It's not like, you know, you got a huge ribbon-cutting ceremony and they come in, they just have their big scissors and they get to cut the ribbon. No. These there's people who are occupying this area now and they're going to have a huge problem when the Jews come back and say, "Hey, we're we're taking it back. And we're taking this land back too." That's not going to be easy. And they very well recognized that and yet God stirred up their hearts. They had a purpose. This is not going to be a vacation or some kind of uh trip that that would help them to know about their history better. You know, we'll, we'll go back and see what our forefathers used No. This is a trip that was going to require a great amount of sacrifice on their part. And yet they recognized that the goal was to restore proper worship to God in the temple. And that's in fact what they do here. We'll see next week. They, they just start out right away. We need to build an altar. We need to bring to God proper sacrifices. Even before the, the temple foundation is laid, we're going to do that. Well, in chapter 2, the Jews re-enter the land of Canaan. This is the third thing that we see. God stirs up the heart of Cyrus. God stirs up the hearts of the Jews. And then thirdly, the Jews re-enter the land of Canaan. And that's in chapter 2. Ezra here carefully records a representative list of Jews who returned to Jerusalem. This is not an exhaustive list. It's a representative list of the Jews that returned to Jerusalem under the leadership of Zerubbabel. Now, this list is important, especially for a Jew, because uh, it, it, it authenticated their legitimate claim on that land. This was not just a group of people who are interested in Jewish history. Hey, we're going to go back and see if we can reclaim the land. This is a group of people who could trace their ancestry back to Jacob. And the identity of the people who returned is shown for us there. In verses 3 to 35, We have the lay people or just some common people. They didn't have any specific titles. Verses 3 to 35 lists them. And then verses 36 to 39, we have a record of the priests who returned. Verses 40 to 42, we have the Levites. So there, there were Levites who were not priests. hope you recognize that. They had other responsibilities other than being a priest. So that's what verses 40 to 42 are about. And then you had temple servants, people who just gave themselves for the work of the temple, verses 43 to 54. And then you have the descendants of Solomon's servants. So Solomon apparently had in his temple, he had some, a special group of people who were servants in his temple, and they probably just had a, the specific responsibility to take care of the temple, but they also descended from the servants who were helping during the time of Solomon. And they're listed along with the other temple servants. And then verses 59 to 63, we have a list of, of people who have unconfirmed claims about their Jewish heritage. You couldn't just come up and say, you know, hey, I'm a Jew, and um, you know, I, I, I deserve to have some of this land and some of the benefits of being here. Or you couldn't just say, hey, I'm, I'm of the priestly line, of, of Levi's line, and so I, I'm here to take my responsibility as a priest in this temple when it's finished. You couldn't do that. You had to have records to show that you, in fact, were uh, um, part of that line. So, here we have Israel being led out of captivity in Babylon back to Jerusalem through the providential work of God. God being behind it all, causing it to happen according to His exact timeline when it would happen, 70 years after the captivity had begun. And... And and uh, so God is the one who gets the praise. The goal of this restoration is is to bring back proper worship of God as God had once uh, God had had desired before. Look at chapter. Look at chapter six with me. Chapter six, verse twenty one. The sons of Israel who returned from exile and all those who had separated themselves from the impurity of the nations of the land to join them seek the Lord God of Israel, ate the Passover. And they observed the Feast of Unleavened Bread seven days with joy, and the Lord had caused them to rejoice and had turned the heart of the king of Assyria toward them to encourage them in the work of the house of God, the God of Israel. Here in Ezra 6, we see that that the work is, is advancing and that the purpose here is so that so that they would be able to verse 21 seek the Lord God of Israel and that they would be able to obey all of these Jewish regulations with regard to proper worship of God that that God would even work behind the king of Assyria to to encourage them to do this work the goal is to restore proper worship of God in the temple and yet what we're going to find here, especially next week in chapters three and four but but even throughout the rest of the book and in Nehemiah, that there this is no easy task. this is going to be met with much opposition. And we'll come to these various forms of opposition as we study the book. but let me draw your attention to these forms of opposition now. The first we saw was distance it's a thousand miles away from Babylon can't just hop on a a train or or, or a bus or a a boat or a plane you have to walk it's a long way the second op- uh, obstacle to their restoring worship to the temple is probably the most significant and that is the enemies okay if you remember the story of Nehemiah you remember that there are they basically have to work with one hand and hold a sword in the other to protect themselves that the, the inhabitants of Canaan are are no friends of the rebuilding of the temple and the Jews are terrified of them. And that's why the work constantly stops. Like, well, is it really that important to get the temple back up and running? Is it really that important to worship God that way? Can't we just do it kind of how we've been doing it the last 70 years? And so the, the enemies of God are certainly uh, a form of opposition. Another form is the governing authorities. We're going to see in chapter 4 next week that Artaxerxes uh, is one who who is opposed to the work and he is easily dissuaded by some, uh, some, some uh, snitches, I guess you could say, some people who are enemies of Israel, and they send a letter to King Artaxerxes, and he says, you know what, yes, you're right. This temple restoration needs to stop. It's not going to happen because these people are not going to be good citizens. They're not going to pay their taxes, and so we don't want that to happen. We don't want anybody opposing the king in that way, so this, this is not going to happen. And then King Darius as well uh, seems to be a form of opposition as the governing authority also. Uh, Another form of opposition is lack of resources. It's just... It's not going to be the same as Solomon's temple. Next week we're going to see that that some of these older people that were alive during the time of Solomon's temple before it was destroyed and now seeing what's happening now they're just going to say it's not the same thing. It's just not all the splendor of Solomon's temple and and in order to even get it to where it ought to be according to the Old Testament there should be some gold uh, utensils and, and goblets and so on that need to be used but remember what happened to all those? King, King Nebuchadnezzar had taken those all away when he destroyed the temple he t- took them and put them in the temple in Babylon the temple of Zeus and so they're going to have to get those back somehow that's a, that's a form of opposition or make new ones and then the, the final form of opposition, that obstacle that keeps them from restoring the temple is their own sin. Haggai is going to come around. If you remember the prophet Haggai and Zechariah, they they are contemporaries of Ezra. They come a little bit before Ezra. But, but they come and they, they get the people off the seat of their pants and back to work. It's like, you guys are taking care of all your own houses, but it's time to work on the house of God. And And so these people are just In some cases, lazy. They lack vision. They don't see the value of serving God in this way. And then in chapter 9, we're going to see of Ezra that there's even intermarriage with pagans. That's going to be a problem for Ezra who is seeking reform and purity and truth. So what is Israel supposed to do about this? They have all these obstacles that are coming from outside of them and even from inside their own hearts. What could they possibly do in order to see this temple worship restored in Jerusalem? Is it really worth it? And there are several things that they can do and will do. First, that they have to recognize God's sovereignty over all the affairs of life. While they don't recognize that the Lord is the one who stirred Cyrus's heart, and maybe at the time they don't recognize that God stirred their hearts, Ezra would later write that and recognize that that's what God was doing. God was behind it all. And that God was the one who sent... Haggai and Zechariah to, to get them up and working again. God's the one who caused the government to be favorably, dis, favorably disposed toward Judah as we read here in chapter 6, verse 22. God's the one who sent Ezra the priest. God's the one who protected them from thieves as they transported all these valuables. We're going to see that they're going to bring a lot of valuables from Babylon to Jerusalem and God's the one who protected them along the way. They didn't have any bodyguards. And throughout the book, let me show you some of these places we see this this uh, phrase chapter 7 we see this phrase that the hand of God was upon them and we'll just see it over and over again that it's God who is behind this restoration of the temple that this worship that God is requiring is is a big deal to God and so he's going to, to help them in this chapter 7 verse 6 this Ezra went up from Babylon and he was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses, which the Lord God of Israel had given. And the king granted him all he requested because the hand of the Lord his God was upon him. And then skip down to verse 9. For on the first day of the first month he began to go up from Babylon. And on the first day of the fifth month he came to Jerusalem because the good hand of his God was upon him. And then skip down to verse 28 end of the verse says, Thus I was strengthened according to the hand of the Lord my God upon me, and I gathered leading men from Israel to go up with me. So all this opposition is the, the, the converse of that. You know, We think of well, all these obstacles. What are, how are we going to get over them? What well, we see on the other side is that God is the one that's behind it. God has His hand upon them. It's going to help them get over these barriers to restoring temple worship. Chapter 8, verse 18. According to the good hand of our God upon Him, Chapter 8, verse 22, the hand of our God is favor- favorably disposed to all those who seek Him. And on it goes. God is one who is behind it all. So we need to recognize, like the Jews need to recognize, that God is sovereign over all the affairs of life. Secondly, if we're going to overcome these oppositions like Israel did, for them, restoring temple worship, for us, um, properly worshiping God, then, then we must follow God's lead. We must follow God's lead. For Ezra, he recognized that the way that these people are going to be reformed, the way reformation was going to come about was not just uh, was, not ju- was not through giving them a guilt trip. Like, you, you people are terrible. When are you ever going to get it right? That's not how it happened. Instead, he recognized that the way for them to see reform, the way that reform was going to happen in the people, because remember, some of the problems were within them. Their own sin. It was that they would learn the Scripture. Remember, Ezra, Ezra stood up in front of them all and said, alright, let's, let's just read through God's law. And that's what chapters 7-10 through 10 is about. The reform that Ezra seeks to bring in the lives of Israel. If we're going to follow God's lead, we need to seek His face. We need to pray to Him as we'll see throughout Ezra and Nehemiah that the, that the leaders of Israel do. We need to worship Him according to His standards. We need to fast and pray. We need to acknowledge sin. We need to follow God's lead. God has laid out for us what He expects of us and we shouldn't just flippantly come in and say, well, you know, worship's just going to happen today. It doesn't just happen. It's something that we have to, to work at and refine and, and go back to the Scriptures, find out what we're doing wrong, what, what we need to improve upon, where we don't see God's character properly, where we don't see our sin properly and and follow God's lead in that way. So first, recognize God's sovereignty over all the affairs of life. Follow God's lead. And then thirdly, praise God for His guidance. As God comes to bring them to a place where they are starting this process of restoring worship, they're going to praise God for His guidance. That they, they do recognize that at some degree, some level, that God's behind it. Even... In chapter 8, where Ezra is too afraid to ask the king for military help, God is the one who protects the people when they bring back the treasures. And, and that is something that, is, that God is worthy of our praise. So, seeking proper worship for us may bring about fierce opposition. I don't know what kind of obstacles specifically that you have that keep you from worshiping God as He expects to be worshipped. But when God plans to accomplish some, something, He will overcome those oppositions. He will come, overcome those barriers, those obstacles for us getting to proper worship. But, but we can't just expect Him to do it automatically. The life of a Christian is not an automatic life that once we get saved, it's just, you know, just go into co- uh, autopilot. And we just sit back and let it go. It's not the way the Christian life works. It is a life of effort, of work, Um, not in order to receive our salvation, but as a result of it, we work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. Why? Because God is working in us both the will and the do of His good pleasure. And so we seek the ways of God in order to overcome the obstacles that keep us from proper worship to God. God can be trusted. God must be trusted. We must see that He is in control of these things and that we must follow His lead and praise Him for His guidance along the way. Let's pray. Father, thankful for the opportunity that we have over the next several months to be able to study uh, through these two books that remind us of how You brought Your people back to a place where they could restore proper worship. And that would go on for... Uh, several more centuries until our Lord would come and fulfill all that was designed in, uh, uh, to bring about proper worship to you. He would he would fulfill that uh, through being a perfect high priest and serving in the heavenly temple and bringing a perfect sacrifice and being our continual, perpetual intercessor, one who prays for us regularly. And so, Lord, we don't seek to uh, have worship in a certain place necessarily. We can worship anywhere uh, where Your people are. But, but Lord, we recognize that we worship primarily through a person, through Jesus our Savior, who has come to give His life so that we would uh, have the wrath that should have come upon us from You assuaged that it would be removed and satisfied in the death and the punishment that Jesus took on Himself for us. So Lord, we come as people who are amazed at Your grace and who love Your mercy and want to see You worshipped in spirit and in truth. So Lord, we pray that You'd help us to, to get over the obstacles, the, the, the various kinds of opposition that come from truly worshipping You. Maybe it's physical ailments, maybe it's weather, maybe it's uh, relational problems, maybe it's our own sin. Lord, we pray that that we would recognize Your sovereign control over things and follow Your lead, look into Your Word to find out how we can be better worshipers of You. And Lord, we pray that as a church that we would not be satisfied with the quality of worship that we have now, but be constantly seeking purer, purer worship Worship that pleases You in every way, that is led by the Spirit, where people are being filled with the Spirit throughout the week, not just coming here and and getting all pretty spiritually on Sunday, but but throughout the week are consistent, have a consistent life of purity and love, and that when we come here, it's, it's an overflow of grace, uh, of unworthiness on our part, and worthiness uh, recognizing the worth of You, Lord, help us in our worship corporately. We want to have You meet with us each week. We want You to speak to us. We want Your Spirit to change us. We want You to be pleased in how we come to worship. So help us, we pray. In Jesus' name, Amen.